Hey there, I'm Pete Townsend, and this is Money Never Sleeps. We look inside the minds of entrepreneurs and the crossover of startups, enterprise, finance, technology, and life as we know it. In this episode, Owen Fitzgerald and I riff on the latest U.S. regulatory crackdown in crypto markets, how NBA Top Shot on the Apple App Store is a leading indicator of our wider society's digital asset adoption, whether we realize it or not, trouble in banking as a service land with Solaris, Nova Credit's entry to the U.K. market, and Revolut's Irish Trojan Horse, all right here on Money Never Sleeps. Hey, Owen. Hey, Pete. How you doing? How's good. How are you? Not too bad. I'm dying with a cold here, but I'm more interested in finding out about your uh, nice week in sunny Spain. Oh, <laughs> the, I, it was like a unseasonably warm day in Bray. It's oh. <laughs> the way that... I That's not bad. In January. <laughs> right. So it was, um, the, there's this wind that comes down from the Pyrenees down the west coast of, sorry, down the east coast of Spain called Levante. And that kept, th- kept things a little bit windy, kept the seas a little bit choppy, no swimming, no tide current, all that. We brought all of our, you know, warm water, cold water swimming gear even. Didn't get to use any of that, but thankfully our friends had a pool. And so, you know, our kids got to go swimming in that, which which was nice. But it was like... You know, a five-day sneak away Friday to Tuesday in the middle of this TechStars Web3, yeah, madness is a good way to, to, to say it because we've crunched this all down to leave applications open till February 1st, pick the cohort basically by, you know, by the end of February. And so it's a lot to get through. And I can't speak publicly about the number of applications, but we were impressively floored by the oh, amount brilliant. of applications that we got in and such high quality propositions, high quality teams, you know, and that's what we double down on is the high quality teams, the great founders. So it's just been, it's been nonstop. It's literally nonstop. So I did every night till after midnight before we went to Spain and then was able to shut off a little bit because thanks to Paul Smith, been working on that meditation, right? (laughs) And I I can quiet the brain a bit now. And that we've got, but then, you know, ramp right back into and it's been nonstop since we went back. So the whole weekend before we left and all this past weekend, but we're in pretty good shape now. And it's um, really, really excited about, you know, the the companies that we're getting closer to making offers to. We made an offer to one already. So, you know, more to come, which is, you know, really, really exciting times, but it's, it's relentless. And I was saying to folks this morning, what it's really opened my eyes up to is the power of deal flow, right? Yeah. And that I genuinely get excited with Hugh McGurr, who is our <laughs> investment principal, when yeah. he finds a deal that he's really excited about because he's done all the deep analysis on it and he's talked to the team and he said, I've got a good one here. And I get really excited when he's like, okay, we've got a high quality one for me to dig into too. And what I found is that when I start expressing that passion and that sentiment and that excitement to investors, that they, it resonates with them too. And that's what we want. We want to be able to get these companies in front of investors. So this, you know, high quality vetted deal flow, when you're in early stage VC, you should only be investing in one to 2% of the deals you see, right? And we're going to get to that. You know, that's, that's the, that's the rate we're going to be at here. One to 2% of the deals we see. So finding a, a top quality one is, you know, a, a, is an amazing experience. So really exciting been, to see, uh, you know, what the, what, when the cohort gets announced, what type of companies you have, that'll be cool. Yeah. Yeah. We, we were able to open this up more to infrastructure 
last year we couldn't because we needed everything to be tokenized. Generally, you don't need to tokenize infrastructure companies in Web3 or in any, you know, in any web. And it's so now that we have that liberty to be able to say, hey, we can invest, you know, while last year we did invest in both equity and tokens that, you know, we are what the... The requirement was is that they needed to have some type of token. Now yeah, it's just okay. Helps, yeah. We can invest in equity and tokens if they have a token, but we're going to look at that with a huge amount of scrutiny to see if they really do need a token. Because yeah. tokens can sometimes be used as a, hey, that's going to be an easier way to raise money. Not anymore yeah. from a market perspective and not anymore from a regulatory perspective. So there's two things to be uh, to be looking at there. But legitimately, but, some have yeah. tokens in the middle of their value propositions, which are completely necessary. Right, yep. that they do need them. And so, okay, let's see how we make sure we can get that into the right regulatory context with we've got a bunch of amazing folks with some great legal experience that are contributing to the program. So, you know, we're in good shape there. Brilliant. Brilliant. So what do you want to talk about today? What I want to talk about today, we got a few things. Yeah. We're gonna do four. We're gonna do half and half, but I think there's some some topics here that are, you know, more crypto and web three leaning that I think you'll, you, you've got some insights on, right? I think <laughs> yeah. you do, you know, and I, I, this is funny that you and I are now both speaking in these, shall we say, cloggy tones, yeah. <laughs> given that, oh, I wanted to make sure I said this, was that we did have to take two weeks off because of the intensity of this screening process. And the last time that I actually put my voice on air three weeks ago was when it was far worse than this, when I was coming back from New York and I had lost my voice the night before, just like you nearly did yeah, last yeah. night, right? Yeah, absolutely. I was like, oh, I was trying to protect it all day yesterday, and because uh, I was lecturing last night for four hours, and I was at the end of it, like, it was, I was croaking. Yeah. So yeah. it was like lots of lots of breakout rooms. You guys yeah. talk there amongst yourselves. I know. Uh, I yeah. know. <laughs> I, I I spoke with someone at five a.m. after I lost my voice the night before. Or tried to, and it was just like, okay, let's just, you know, yeah. I'll see you on Slack because <laughs> yeah. it's not working. But, but we're back with a bang now. Back with a bang, back with a bang. Lot, so much stuff happening in the crypto market <clears throat> and, you know, being over in the U.S. last month, felt a little bit of this from being there. And by, you know, it, it, it but, you know, over the last four weeks, it's really come out strong in that this is from CNBC. And it was just a general story that they did last week on Valentine's Day. Love crypto, right? Crypto markets yeah. on edge as US regulatory crackdown on industry intensifies. So the the news items, the things that this article pointed to were Paxos to stop minting BUSD. Now Paxos do a couple of things. They provide they have their own stablecoin, right? Which is pegged to the US dollar called I, I think it's USDP for USD Paxos. And they also have a white label framework that they provide out to others that want to mint and have a stablecoin. So they provide their kit to Binance. And Binance use the Paxos kit to mint BUSD, which is Binance USD stablecoin. Okay. So what's happened is that the SEC are suggesting it's a security. How can a asset that's pegged to the US dollar be a security? That's a good question. I don't know. Now, I've been thinking about this. So stable coins can have a somewhat murky model behind them, okay? So if you're familiar with e-money, 
and the electronic money institution regulatory framework in Europe. And you're nodding your head. So I think that you are. So e-money, so before, you know, take Revolut, right? They are still an e-money institution in the UK. They are not yet a bank. They are a bank in Europe. So if you're an e-money institution, you need to have 100% of the deposits into your entity, your institution. You need 100% of that safeguarded. And it needs to be in a safeguarding account marked as such at a, you know, at a bank. Okay? So even though you are an e-money institution or, you know, e-money, you still need to have that one-for-one match. You cannot lend that money out. So, and that is saying that this digital representation that you see in your app, in your Revolut app, where you have 500 quid or whatever, that that digital representation is actually backed 100% by real cash that is on deposit somewhere else. In a banking model, you don't need to do that because you have a true banking license, a real banking license, and that you can lend out, the bank can lend out your deposits, right? And they hold a reserve of 10 to 15% or whatever it is. So with e-money, that is regulated. You need to have all the compliance, the procedures, the checks in place to make sure that there is actually 100% of the cash that customers deposit into your e-money institution is actually on deposit and held and you do all the reconciliations there, right? If you look at the stablecoin model, the stablecoin model is very, very similar to e-money in that what the way that stablecoins work is that when you buy, say, USDC, that the fiat or the traditional currency that you exchange for that, that is on deposit with that stablecoin issuer and whatever bank they're using for that. Now, there are no regulatory rules in place. That's the Mm. difference. So with EMIs, you need to have it 100% cash. With stablecoins, you can do what you want. You could say, hey, I'm going to do 85, 90% in cash and the rest in treasury bills, right? So the fact that there is no regulation around this, there is no required compliance regime, and that then suggests, okay, if there is a murky model, or we don't, we, we know what, you know, USDC Circle have been pretty transparent on their model and how much cash is actually on deposit and what is in T-bills and other type of instruments. Tether have been less so, USDT. BUSD, who knows? Right, that's finance as, as we've been talking about their stablecoin. So, if BUSD has any murkiness to it, is there a risk that BUSD could go belly up? Perhaps. Yeah. That's one thing, and that would be terrible if we had a widely used stablecoin with billions and billions and billions worth of economic value in it. That just is is gone because we have no transparency on how Binance are actually have their reserve model in place. So I think what they're doing was saying that this is a security in a roundabout way, saying that if if you as a depositor are knowingly giving somebody cash and you're not sure what they're going to do with it, maybe they'll lend it out. Maybe they'll do something else with it, but they're going to give you back. You know, they say they'll give you back a dollar for every dollar you deposit then is that a security? Because there is an expectation that they're going to have to do something to turn a profit in order to pay you back that dollar. That, I think, is where this is all going, which is incredibly complicated. And you know what? It strikes me, without knowing it in the detail as you necessarily would, it does strike me that there 
isn't part of the issue in the US is that there weren't regulations in place, you know, originally mm -hmm. in the same way that there is an e-money license, for example. You know, you've got, you know, a strange kind of regulatory landscape in the US by state and from at a federal level and stuff. And I think now, obviously, with crypto, kind of there's a lot. It, it kind of expands on the gray areas that were already there. And, you know, typically what are they trying to do and what we've seen in Europe with like the kind of VASP license and stuff is they're trying to just make these things fit into an existing one is the quickest and easiest way to, you know, capture what's going on in the crypto space. And in the US, they don't have that option because they didn't really have the legislation around even the fintech space or the, or, yeah, you know, the regulation that kind of covered some of the innovation in fintech prior to even crypto. So they're chasing their tails a little bit and they're trying to make it fit into whatever existing kind of framework is there, which is why you, they're probably trying to classify things as securities when, you know, they don't look like a security. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm you know, I listened to the guys from On the Brink, Matt Walsh and Nick Carter from Castle Island Ventures, or CIV as they call themselves internally, which I heard them say, and they were trying to dig into this and, and didn't really dive in. They switched to a, a deep dive into the custody role, which is a different kettle of fish I won't get into. But I, I'm the, the, while listening to them and walking up in the stepside hills, I was thinking deeply about what could be the logic for saying that a stable coin is a security. And the only thing I could come up with was that if you are, like I said, if you are willingly giving your cash to somebody knowing that they're going to have to turn a profit in order to pay you back $1, that is that some type of a security, right? Yeah. You know, without having that regulatory, hey, this needs to be 100% backed. E-money is not a security because from yeah. a regulatory perspective, it needs to be 100% backed by cash, you know? So um, th that's all I could get to. All, also, what happened was that Kraken settled with the SEC for $30 million on its staking as a service being deemed a security, which is like, oh. I remember seeing that one and thinking and seeing a lot of commentary online thinking that that was, look, that was a bit, that seemed like a bit of a reach. Yeah, and, the, and Jesse Powell from Kraken had a lot to say about that on Twitter. But, yeah. and they, 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 but they, it did seem is, like the, the, the quickest answer was to settle and make it go away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this, this is where you are depositing crypto onto an exchange. And because the exchange is collecting so many deposits from all their different users and customers that they can pool that together and put that and stake that onto one of the blockchain protocols that reward stakers with additional tokens, okay? So when you look at that under traditional securities laws, there's some of that that may suggest that it, what is what is Kraken themselves doing? I disagree with the yeah. ruling, a hundred percent because you need to look at the technology and when you piece apart the technology and how it works you can see oh actually no that's not a security yeah. uh, but the sec is making some very high level calls i think i've said before i have met gary gensler before he did a blockchain curriculum at mit he was over in dublin a few years ago i participated in a panel that he was part of the panel before very very smart guy yeah. he knows this stuff but I think in order for that, you know, he's in a political position and the stuff that I hear him That's saying, yeah. the stuff that I hear him saying isn't the same Gary Gensler I met four years ago, right? Because he was talking about it with, with a far more informed position, shall we say. No, the, the whole thing stinks of a need from a political point of view to 
address you know the crypto space and feel like they're doing something and the quickest way to do that is to shoehorn it into some existing regulation exactly exactly you know and 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 you know uh, to, to close this one out why i get so excited about it and 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 think so deeply about it is just because i can see and having so much familiarity now with the e-money institution framework and having so much familiarity with the stablecoin framework that is primarily driven out of the U.S. And I'm like, can't we just all bring it together, please? Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think Mika, the market and crypto assets framework, is very clearly pointing to the fact that stablecoins are e-money. So yeah. let, let's just get it there. And I, Circle have now issued the Euroc, the EU Euro Circle stablecoin. There's only like 35 million in that, so very, very tiny. But, you know, I'm, 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 I'm taking some steps in that direction, shall we say. But, yeah. you know, there's no upside on that. It's just to kind of, you know, get yourself into the middle of what are these day-to-day consumer transaction flows going to look like when we're basically all spending cryptographically secured assets, right? Yeah. That's the joy of it all. Moving to the other side of the passion, yep. right? What, are we, what am I passionate about? Money and sports, right? <laughs> of course, yep. family. And, you know... NBA Top Shots, right? So Top Shot will let users buy NFTs via Apple and Android mobile apps, which is a big deal. So up until now, again, just for those that don't know, NBA Top Shots are NFTs, non-fungible tokens, that are digital collectibles of NBA players, okay? And it isn't just static images. It can be 3D imagery. It can be highlight moments. And, but... They're all issued on the Flow blockchain, which is from Dapper Labs, and it is basically what we would call a, a, a private blockchain. Okay, so you you can't really you can't move assets off of that blockchain to other blockchains. All of the transactions need to be done on that single Flow blockchain, which was set up specifically for NBA Top Shots. So it's almost like a quasi centralized blockchain, right? But for the purposes of enabling transfer amongst those who are all part of this, you know, that are that are basically customers of NBA Top Shot, it works, okay? So what happens is that you go onto NBA Top Shots, onto their website. So before they, they're opening up on the Apple Store, you go onto the website, you set up all your login details, and you can use basically a credit card to buy a $9 pack of cards, of digital cards, and you see what you get. Now, if you get one of the legendary LeBron James that is now selling on NBA Top Shot's marketplace for $84,000. Wow. Yeah. So all of that was done on the website because they hadn't yet figured out how to do this on Apple Store, on the App Store. And But if you want to do it on your mobile, obviously you needed to do it through web, right? Through a Chrome interface, through a Safari interface, whatever. That can be a bit clunky. So now they have the app. And, the, and as do you remember what the take rate is for Apple? 30%, for, yeah. Exactly. So when you put 30% on top of the purchase of a $9 pack of these cards, not a big deal. You know, you're going to gross that into the price and Apple gets their cut, you know, not a big deal, but it's the upside. Are you going to go sell your $84,000 LeBron James card and give away? No, you're not. So all that they've done in the app store is the primary marketplace. Or you can just buy those cards. You can buy the yeah. initial pack for $9. They haven't opened up the secondary yet, and I don't think they will. So this is kind of equivalent to back in the 80s and 90s, they had baseball card shows 
where you could, you know, you, you, you bought a pack of baseball cards for a dollar or two. And then if you got a really good one, you could bring it to this card convention show and you could sell it to a dealer for, you know, for, I don't know if you, you got one that was worth a couple hundred. Right. And it was that the, you know, the convention center itself taking a 30% cut. That's, that never worked. And I, I don't think it, you know, that wouldn't work with, with the Apple store. But yeah. Yeah. I see this slowly starting to work and slowly starting to unfold with having these digital assets actually work on the App Store. Right. It's, it's, there was some, Big conundrum in the last six months or so that we talked about on the show about that going back. And it was very confusing. But now I think I got my head around it as to, you know, where this actually is all going to go. Yeah. Do you know what? It seems like looking at it that this is the first step. Like it works for Tapper Labs to be able to get up on the App Store and on mobile and be able to kind of be integrated. And even if they're just selling their $9 packs, but like they did a billion in sales last year or something. So Apple surely will look at it and be like, look, if, as long as this works, then we'll figure out some solution down the line. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I wonder how it could work. So is the opportunity for Apple to have all NBA Top Shot sales, like you said, a billion, go through the App Store and for them to get 30% of that, is that going to be enough to get them thinking about a new framework? for a secondary market for digital assets and to create a new category of a take rate around that, right? That will be progressive. That will be something that others can uh, adapt to. And I think we, and because the more and more and more that we have of Apple supporting this stuff, the bigger it's going to get. Yeah, I mean, I I read yesterday, like 70% of Gen Z people, Gen Z in the US prefer iPhone over Android, right? Yeah, you know, so it it, but it, it is the the largest I think the, the difference the here economy. is probably the resale is the fact that these can be traded multiple times. Mm. So you know, whatever, let's say they come down from thirty percent to ten percent, you could get ten percent of multiple transactions on the same NFT, and that's where you know I think once they figure out the number and the likelihood of resales and things like that, you know, the multiple is it will be worth it. Yeah, that's as opposed point. to you know your traditional app where you're paying once maybe for whatever, whatever it is you're buying, or even Spotify or for an album or whatever, you know you're doing it one time. You can't reset it on necessarily. Yeah, I know. I think Spotify might actually be in this player in this reader app where I, I'm not sure if Spotify memberships are subject to the thirty percent Apple Store take. They may be because mm-hmm. uh, obviously they're a competitor to Apple. So yeah. Who knows? But one of the one of the other things that came out of this, I mean, what what I'm what I'm really looking for from an app is that, you know, whatever my collection is and whether it's NBA Top Shots or it's the Tops Candy baseball ones or generative art or some of this Robert Alice stuff with that we you know, we talked about a few years ago that he's doing with these cuneiform discs all linked to the original Bitcoin blockchain, you know, first 40 blocks linked to historical moments, all this crazy mind-bending stuff, right? And seeing some really damn cool generative art stuff come out of some of the yeah. companies we're looking at for the, this next accelerator program. Having that single viewer where I can just engage with this stuff on my phone is probably going to be the single biggest way that I would engage with it. Yeah. You know, looking down at a browser on a laptop 
I just don't want to do that. It's it's really about the ergonomics of the phone and what that phone was designed to to do. Yeah. Right? It's to be this communications portal and this digital entertainment portal for you, right? You know, in the palm of your hands. And that's how people enjoy these things. Having NBA Top Shots now in an app on a phone, I think is a big first step in that direction. Especially um, for mainstream adoption like that. Totally. You have it in everybody's hand. Like you know, just hey, look what it. I just got. Screenshot, click, boom, post it up on Instagram. Yeah. All my friends, wonderful. Hey, I'm cool, right? Yeah. You know, that that is the way it's going. The other thing I saw, and this is with a shout out to Pet Barisha, who writes the Sporting Crypto newsletter, because I hadn't seen this because I didn't watch the NBA All-Star Game, mm. where David Silver, sorry, David Silver, is that his name? I think it is. Adam David Silver. Was, Adam Silver. David yeah. Silver was on... Beverly Hills 90210. It's not the same guy. <laughs> no. <laughs> Adam Silver. He, Jesus, I'm dating myself with that. <laughs> so him and Ahmad Rashad, Ahmad Rashad's an NBA announcer on NBC, I think. They, so Adam Silver took his phone and it did a 360 degree view shot of Ahmad Rashad and then showed this screen-based representation. It was actually the game and it is an app overlay on top of you watching a game where you create this avatar of yourself and you can you overlay can insert into the game highlights. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. That is so cool. Oh, yeah. My God. And and Pet Barish's, you know, title for this was The Metaverse Doesn't Suck. <laughs> and it's like I saw that and seeing that paired with the stuff going on with NBA top shots, seeing the opportunity to start to link all that together and yeah. to see this multimedia augmented reality type of stuff that's all happening being able to have that in the palm of your hands and your phone that is just that's, that's huge that's a game changer such stuff. a big yeah. money maker yeah and you know i think the biggest thing that i'm seeing again with with you know looking at all these different companies that are applying to this program i i've said i said we're seeing so much of this stuff right we're seeing so much of it all these different propositions that are you know close cousins of each other the biggest biggest ones the ones that will really be able to have an impact are those who can bring the fame right those that have the yeah. networks and the relationships to bring the fame and obviously you know nba are a great example of that and dapper labs now being a great example of that yeah but lots of nice little things happening with really smart people from these businesses that are saying hey i can go do something too i'm gonna go launch my own but i have this great network from being part of this so yeah. that's yeah. that's a way to look at it so yeah exciting stuff happening coming out of uh, nba and having both jason tatum and Jalen Brown in the NBA All Star Game from the Boston Celtics was pretty cool. So there you go. Did you did you see what was his name? The the, the guy who won the dunk contest. I watched his dunks. They were brilliant. I didn't he see it. Just, who, he just joined the league from like the the G League reserves. This is because he's only on like a, a a rookie contract, one year contract. He made more money in winning the dunk contest than he did than he gets paid for the year. But like, not a guy you would look at and think is going to win. The, he got four. He did four dunks, and three of them were were like perfect scores. Mac McClung. Mac McClung. Yep. Wow. From the white, 76ers. white men can't jump. You want to see his dunks? They were brilliant. Oh, wow. So good. No, I'm definitely going to have to check that out. Yeah. Sixers yeah. guard Mac McClung outshines yeah. Trey Murphy to claim the slam dunk title. Yeah. yeah. So, so watch that. Watch that separately. Right. It was really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I will check that out. I will check right. that out. Cool. So moving okay. from yeah. crypto and NBA back to Europe, yeah. we we see some trouble with Solaris, don't we? 
Yeah, do you know what? This was an interesting one. It was in Forbes on the 15th of February. This is around, it's called Solaris Setback Spells Trouble for European Fintech Scene. And this was, wasn't even necessarily trouble, as you'd call it, for Solaris, but it, it, it speaks to the wider kind of banking as a service and embedded finance piece because... Solaris obviously is a German banking as a service provider and they've and Baffin, the German regulator, has come down on these types of operations to say that like in, in this particular example, Solaris is gonna need approval from the regulator before they onboard any new customers, which obviously is gonna hit its ambitions but it's it's the idea of kind of launching any sort of digital finance solution where you have multiple partners is gonna be a, an issue and like the these are similar. This was kind of this restriction was put on N26 and another kind of German banking as a service provider, and it's around there. Obviously, it's on the back of kind of Wirecard, you know, that the regulator is operating with a caution, but it really extends out to the multiple kind of moving parts of banking slash tech company. Because if you remember from Wirecard, you know, it, I, I was actually only talking about it last night as an example with the the cohort in the Pat FinTech course. And it was around the fact that the regulator got sued by customers who'd lost money. And the regulator's argument was, well, we didn't need to regulate Wirecard because it was a tech company. You know, they they regulated the license payment side of the house, not the tech part of the business. And obviously that's where this that kind of experience is feeding in now because, you know, the idea of banking as a service and being able to offer multiple different parts as a tech platform in, out of Germany is getting kind of really hampered by the view that the that a German regulator is taking. So, you know, we're, Solaris are looking to provide kind of embedded finance solutions with um, for earlier stage companies, etc. But now it's they're going to have to ex- extend their kind of existing relationships with larger players because they're really restricted from bringing on new customers. So... It'd be interesting to see does that kind of flow out beyond Germany, um, yeah. Because they're an incredibly like they've been doing very well. They've been a really attractive kind of supporter and solution in the market, and I think they've been in Spain and Italy and France as well. But yeah, it really is going to hamper that business. But what kind of knock-on effect does that have on the kind of embedded finance banking as a service market? Will be interesting to yeah. see. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the the sentence that stood out for me in this article on Forbes by Megan Johnson, who's formerly with a, one of the original co-founders of 11FS, okay. and she is, she said that the, the Baffin appears, who is a German regulator, the Baffin appears to be cracking down on institutions with full banking licenses due to concerns about proper business organization, in quotes, proper business organization. <laughs> so you can look at that. It, it, that's a, you know, minefield right there. That's a big, big, big suitcase to unpack. But... You know, you talk about governance, how organizations are set up, what the reporting lines are like, what the management framework is like, the reporting structure, the compliance program, the risk management, having evidence of all that stuff, proper business governance and business organization. We know what that looks like from our time in the corporate world, right? But you can't just inject that sense of, you know, what's good or not into the mindset of a technology executive. You can't, right? And when it's, you know, when you are just a bank, you're just a financial player, you know, your day-to-day decisions are a hell of a lot more governed by regulation than they are technology. No matter what Goldman Sachs says about them being, hey, we're a tech company. You can't do lots of things and you can't offer lots of products and, you, you know, you can't move quickly because you have to deal with the regulatory and compliance aspects of it. 
And like I always use the example, I use it last night, when we launched with Future Finance, we were able to launch with a provisional license with the FCA to lend money. Like in theory, we should never have been allowed to just have a provisional license to lend money. Like we mm. processed, uh, we had about like 5,000 customers or something that we'd given loans to without being fully licensed. You know, like just, there's something not right about that. Well, it allowed us to get up and running and obviously it kept the cost fairly low in, uh, to do that. At the same time, you're thinking, there's 5,000 people who we lent money to. Like, you know, it's a, s- a material risk to the business and we were only kind of lightly licensed. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, but was that small amounts? I mean, up ten, up to kind of a max of fifteen k of a loan. So, like, okay. I mean, you multiply yeah, it up. It's, it's big enough. It's big but enough. But even even in that respect, you know, the 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 contain what is it the contagion or whatever effect you know if anything went bad with us was it likely to impact anybody else? Not necessarily. Well, maybe the, the maybe the institutional lender who gave us the money. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And but it, it's it's be. this sort of stuff. And this is like, it comes into kind of the next article I'd mentioned as well. And even what you're saying, you know, infrastructure players, like, you know, they're a really difficult kind of category to regulate or to account for, where they're providing a technology solution that enables lots of different products on top of it. But at the same time, they have material impact on the market. Oh, they do. They do. And, and we saw that with Wirecard. And that's obviously why Baffin are taking the view that, no, we're going to like clamp down on what you do here now. Because yeah. the more you do and the more you scale, the more risk you are. And yeah. I, I get it. Because in fairness, at least they're taking a stand on it. Because yeah. I've, I've always used Solaris as a, you know, as an example, as a case study in the Pat FinTech night that I do, the faculting, as I call it, right? And, the, you know, talking about them as a, you know, as a hybrid player is, is that they have their technology but that they offer out as a, on a banking as a service basis, but they also have their regulatory license that they offer out. And that just creates a very, very, not impossible, but a very challenging business model to run because you've got, you're, you're getting it from all sides, basically. So I get this and I see Germany, you know, I see Baffin, what they're up to recently. And I, I think, you know, it, with comparing this to the regime again in the US where, FTX was allowed to operate under a money transmitter license, which is akin to what you use for check cashing businesses. It's like, okay, yeah, no. When you have a good, strong regulatory regime in place, the good positive things that it brings to your business in terms of control and frameworks and governance and organization, they're good things, right? They're expensive, but they're the proper way to run a business. You know, not with the way FTX were doing that at, on air, under a money transmitter license, right? So the U.S. has to start <laughs> getting a framework in place. I I keep talking about how far ahead Europe is with all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, and and so the the next article, and actually, the, but this was Nova Credit, and I wanted to flag this one because we spoke about them recently. Nova Credit do. I suppose passporting of credit scores, you know, they're one of the few credit reference agency type operations that, you know, allow you to, or have created a kind of cross-border credit score that allows you to bring your credit score with you into a new market. I think they're, I think they're set up in about 20 different markets. And as of kind of last, the end of last month, they've just got approval to be the UK's first cross-border kind of credit reference provider. So like this is huge from a, 
a, a customer and a consumer point of view because, you know, I'm trying to find the stats here. I had them. There's, they have over 2 billion credit profiles, but more than that, there's a huge number of kind of immigrants in the UK. So let's see, the 2021 census had 10 million people in the UK were born overseas and 40% of them moved to the UK in the last decade. So the big issue this is addressing is that people move to the UK. Like, for example, either of us could move to the UK tomorrow for work and we can't bring our, we couldn't previously bring our credit history with us. We'd be starting off with nothing. You know, and so this is huge for the industry and like that being the first, you know, this is, they have their Nova passport, which pulls your kind of established credit data in different countries and translates it into an equivalent score in a new market, which allows you obviously to apply for loans and financial services products in new market, which is brilliant. And getting that kind of regulatory approval opens up a huge market opportunity for them there in the UK. The kind of the other thing we'd mentioned when we talked about this before, and we obviously were just addressing it there, is you know how structurally important does this company then become to the market? It's the only company out there offering this kind of solution at the moment. You know, because even the big name players like an Equifax, TransUnion, Experian, they don't they despite being yeah. in multiple markets, they don't necessarily provide this service. So Nova Credit is now the only one who potentially can help unlock credit for you know, millions of people around the world in different countries. The FCA authorization they got, is that as a credit bureau? Is that an FCA authorization type? Yeah, it, it must be because it's, let's see, it says it's got, they've, they've, they've got the permissions to provide credit references in the UK. Okay. okay. So yeah, so it allows them to operate as a credit reference agency similar to an Equifax or TransUnion. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, th- this is it. This is, you know, getting truly global with all this stuff because it's not just, you know, people moving around. It's people who are, say, living in, you know, backwater France, right? That are that have a bank account that are employed by someone in Ireland, for example, right? And being able to have financial services and and just following people wherever they go, you know. And the interesting part of this for me is seeing that, you know, the the proportion of consumer spending right now that would point to somebody's credit history, credit risk, um, the the proportion of that that's on a blockchain right now is tiny, you know, compared to, you know, that in traditional banking institutions. But as that continues to grow, that information is far more available and far more public. If you have somebody's address, you can see all of their history, everything. So it's going to be, I, I, you know, who, who's going to start to move first? And it's really saying that, well, you've got Gemini, you've got Coinbase, you've got others that are crypto players that issue credit cards and that, where that spending is then linked back to your crypto account. So it's, it's not exactly on a blockchain, but it is the first step in that direction. And, you know, there are others out there that I'm talking to that are building that where you can link a credit card directly back to a crypto wallet and just spend directly on there on chain, which is just nuts. But that that's what's happening. So I, I'd love to see Nova Credit, you know, the, their need for a blockchain strategy right now and probably over the next two to three years is incredibly minimal. And, you know, there's plenty of legroom for them to grow in this industry, especially with that 10 million they got from HSBC last year. I was but just about it, to bring that up. The way yeah. it's going, you know. Because the question now, or like you could argue that, this really benefits HSBC because they're an investor in a company that now provides credit references in the market where HSBC is his main market or like one of its main markets maybe. Totally. So, you know, does that create an unfair advantage? 
would the US Department of Justice look at this differently as it as it did with Visa and Plaid? Because now it's becoming, like I said, strategically important in markets and for consumers. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, it's excellent. Like it's great for the market and it meets a real need. But is it too important now to allow a bank, for example, to invest in it? And my thing, you know, what? how, how far could they go with this? Because they yeah. have all this data, right? And could they use that to, to offer credit cards? But surely, yeah, exactly. Surely they could go into lending themselves because they. I I have my credit passport with Nova Credit. Why wouldn't I allow them to provide me a loan? They already have yep. all my details. I'd probably get a better rate. Yeah. Now it's yeah. You, you can read into these things and start to see the future, right? Yeah, absolutely. You can. And speaking of credit cards, Revolut. Revolut's favorite customer base. We are right <laughs> here in the middle of that, aren't we? And you think more and more about that. There's what there's. 2 million Revolut account holders in Ireland out of a population of 5 million. That is significant. And someone was saying to me, well, what's going to happen in Ireland with, you know, now it's just Bank of Ireland, AIB, and permanent TSB left as the banks. I said, Revolut, Revolut have the most customers (laughs) in Ireland. And they are a bank, you know, they have their banking license in Lithuania. They're now starting to convert your IBANs over from Lithuanian IBANs to Irish IBANs so that you can, you know, there are a number of payment providers and payment receivers that won't do anything in Ireland unless it's an Irish IBAN. So that's yes, happening. They do buy now, pay later solutions. You do buy now, pay later. You do loans, basic loans, and now credit cards they're issuing and they're starting to do that. And all of this is a Trojan horse for getting your banking data from other banks. In order to do BNPL, you need to hook up to their, you know, their open banking feeds that yep. take your bank account data, your main bank account data, and Revolut churns all that and comes up with a credit amount that they would give you. And whether that is a one-off loan, whether that is buy now, pay later, or a credit card, that's what they're looking at. So oh, it's really, it's really got, smart. It's a really smart play. Mm-hmm. They got their tentacles out and, you know, it's a great place to do it here in Ireland. And, you know, I've been saying that for years is that because of the, the, the different economic circumstances of demographics all over in our, all over Ireland, a very concentrated, you know, portfolio of people <laughs> that it's, it's relatively, it, it's very logical and sensible and pragmatic to do this type of market testing here. Cause you've got a huge yeah. audience. Yeah. So I, 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 I won't be first in the queue to get a Revolut credit card though. No. No, nor will I. <laughs> but at the same time, you could see it very easily being kind of adopted because, you know, even they have their one-off disposable card, if you want to use that to make it to make an online transaction and just use a one-off kind of number. <clears throat> so you could see these, you know, this being kind of rolled out or people applying for this for a period of time. If you're going on holiday for a period or something like that, you know, you might say, okay, well, I'll apply and get the credit card because it'll have a, a, a defined kind of time period on it. Yep. and things like that that again you're not going to use it as your main bank but you will use it in specific circumstances and then if that goes well you'll probably look to use it again more often and etc cetera, etc cetera. so like you said a trojan horse is the ideal way to kind of think about it in terms of rolling out more products building up or monetizing that user base even more but in a kind of slow quiet kind of way yep yep and you know my i, I was talking to my wife about this and i'm just like so sick of Bank of Ireland, you know, I, it's the only yeah. app where you don't get the ding when money gets deposited. 
And when you're running a business, you it, having that ding is incredibly helpful. Working She's like, why don't you just move? I said, where am I going to move? She's like, exactly. That's the problem. I said, I'm not moving to Revolut. I'm not putting my business account into Revolut. Two reasons. One, I've had problems with them before. Two, you know, hackability of 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 Revolut. Right. It, it hasn't happened yet. Knock on wood. But just knowing the shortcomings of their operating model, I just I, I don't. Yeah. So I'm not going there. But that that's the only other option for an Irish, you know, registered business. So not going to do it. Last one. Yeah. Last one. Cover. Buying workplace savings fintech cushion who for one hundred and seventy four million dollars. So this is Reuters, but via Lex Sokolin from the FinTech Blueprint. I picked this up out of his note newsletter on the 13th of February. So it was just a shout out to Bo, you know, from RBS, which RBS is Nat West, isn't it? Yes. Yes. So. Yes. RBS yep. is, is Nat West when that they launched Bo, which was the short-lived neobank. And just seeing this gorilla in the bunny context again, and just seeing if... How long Cushion will last within NatWest? And that Cushion was a pretty good app for helping people to make sense of their pensions and save and savings and direct that appropriately. So we'll see what happens there. But yeah. you know, it could just be you know if they do it right, it will be a nice top of the funnel catchment area for their wealth management business and perhaps cross sell into other yeah. banks. And and you know what? I think this fits in more broadly to kind of my view on the opportunity being you know getting into large corporates. Yeah, and being able to provide so you see it a lot with payroll companies in the US who've brought out kind of expense platforms and stuff and even like the Brex and things where they're they're now kind of trying to reverse themselves in because they're in now providing one solution to a business they're bringing in more kind of products that fit for the employees of those companies yeah you know because they're already already providing especially those ones providing kind of early payment solutions on your payroll like you're again. You're slotting in. You're getting access to data around people's payments. You know. You know when they're getting paid, and you've access to that. And then you're providing another financial services product, but you're not going about it as a bank almost. So yeah. in this scenario, they're, you know, they're taking a company that does workplace savings, and then they're trying to roll out more solutions, more financial services products for the employees of those workplaces. There you go. You always want to get those bigger corporate customers to start moving up, the moving up the chain. Yeah, so it's a, it's an, it was an interesting play. Like to me, it doesn't matter if Cushion kind of disappears. It's if they keep the business and keep the customers yeah. and are then able to further kind of monetize or cross sell to those customers. Oh yeah, every M and A analysis I ever did way back in the day was always: is this a a cost deal or is this a revenue deal? Yeah. And you know, can you cut cost out of this business or can you use it to expand your own revenue and expand the revenue of what you're acquiring even faster because yeah, of that synergy between the that's two? That's what it looks like here. So, so let's look, it could be an interesting one. It, okay. it makes a lot more sense than Bo, anyway. It does. God, <laughs> rest in peace, Bo. Yeah. <laughs> Bo. So let's leave it there. Leave it there. Pleasure. As For always. this week, we'll be back next week. And I've yep. got a guest lined up already. Haven't told you about it yet, but we've got nice. we've got Liang Wu, who is a, a TechStars mentor and also an investor and a deep thinker on Web3, teed up for next week. So it's going to be a phenomenal chat with him. So looking forward to that. Brilliant. Take it easy, Pete. All right. Thanks, pal. Adios. That does it for this week, folks. You can learn more about the stories we covered in the show notes on our website, moneyneversleeps.ie. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating and or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify as it helps others find the show. 
Thanks to Conan Brophy from Create Sound for mixing and editing this episode. Conan is an excellent media man to get in touch with when you're thinking about launching your own podcast. As for me, I'm an early stage startup investor focused on where fintech meets crypto and crypto meets Web3, and I lead the Techstars Web3 Accelerator. There are plenty of links to the show notes on moneyneversleeps.ie on how to get in touch with us, so don't hesitate to reach out. Finally, till next time, thanks for listening. See ya! Money never sleeps, pal.